morning to those of you who are watching online as well. Good to be with you. As we start, I want to ask, have you ever received a gift from someone? And upon receiving it, you know, it's kind of for no discernible occasion, and you, it's not for a birthday or for Christmas or anything like that. So you get this gift, and you ask, well, what's this for? Because you're assuming there must be a reason for the gift that was given to you. That's why at times at holidays we expect it, but when someone gives you an unexpected gift, you're asking, well, what's this for? But I wonder if we ever stop and ask the same thing about spiritual gifts. What if we ever stop and ask the question, well, what are these for? If we're given gifts, obviously there must be a reason for it. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's where we'll be at this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll be exploring that question of why have we been given these gifts by God? What are they for? Now, this is not the only passage that addresses this topic of the, the, the gifts and that we are one body yet multi-gifted. Typically, we also, we also look at Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 alongside 1 Corinthians 12 to address this same topic. And so we'll pull some stuff in from those passages as well. But one thing that stood out to me this week, as I was looking at these three texts and, and, and looking at what they're saying, I noticed that they all take a very similar approach. They all approach the topic in much the same way. Here's what I mean. They're structured like this. All three of them first begin in one way or another by discussing the topic of unity and diversity. That is, that we are one despite being different. And they use that then as a way to kind of lead into the fact that there are many gifts given to the church. But all of that and all three of these texts are drawn then to some sort of conclusion brought to a head with an exhortation to love. So unity and diversity, there's many gifts, and we are called to love. That's the flow we'll take this morning as well. It's what uh, Paul takes in Corinthians and in Romans and in Ephesians. It's this same approach, unity and diversity, many gifts, but all in love. And, you know, when I think about people who are doing this and living this out, people who are serving and using their gifts, uh, people who are loving and who are uh, some of the most servant-hearted people that I know, I very quickly think of Denny and Janie Walter, and you're going to hear from them right now. Hello, we are the Walter family. I'm Janie. And I'm Denny. And to be completely honest with you, doing this video is completely out of our comfort zone. We are more the behind the scenes type of people. However, God calls us to go outside of our comfort zone. So we are confident that he has a purpose for this video today. 42 years ago, we became parents. It was then that God burned into our hearts the importance of living for Him and for teaching our children to do the same. At the church where we raised our family, a newly called minister hung a metal dame plate above his office door. I expected to see his name on the plate, but what I read was, Servants' Quarters. Those words and its message have impacted me throughout the years. I don't think about the word serving. It's just what we do because that's what God does for us. 
to us, serving is synonymous with living. You don't have to be a skilled carpenter to move lumber or sand drywall. You don't have to be a professional painter to paint walls. You don't need a degree in human services to greet people with a friendly smile, to listen to their heart, and to show them that you care. You just need to be willing to be involved. We are not masters of anything, but willing participants in opportunities that are given to us in our church, our schools, and the communities in which we live and worship. Through the opportunity of greeting at the Main Street doors, we have gotten to know so many people outside of our grace group. Words cannot express the joy that fills our lives through all of these dear people that we see on Sunday mornings. Recently, this scripture was revealed to me. It's Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. We realize that's what we have done for years, and our blessings and our joy are beyond measure. In John 15.15, 15, Jesus told his disciples, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. How thankful we are to be called his friends. I'm certainly thankful for that too, and I'm thankful to be called a friend of Denny and Janie Walter as well. They are amazing. You guys see them coming to the door out here, see them around, and uh, just the way they serve, the way they love. You know, we really are better as a church because of them, and uh, that's that's the whole point. That's the whole idea. We are better as a church because of them. We're better as a church because of each one of us coming together as one body of Christ, serving each other. We are better for that. So that's the first thing that we see is that you are a member of the body of Christ. You are a member of the body of Christ. This speaks to your identity. And so to illustrate this, Paul uses the human body, something each one of us is obviously familiar with. He says we have this deep unity even though we have different gifts, just like the body. You've got eyes and ears and nose and mouth and hands and feet, all these different parts and yet one body. A body that's made up entirely of arms would look quite strange and would really be useless. But the arm connected to the rest of the body serves an amazing, tremendous use. It's the same thing with the leg, same thing with the rest of the parts of the body. And that's Paul's point here. That's what he's, he's saying, and we're going to look at this a little bit. And, and, and hopefully this illustration of the body is straightforward. It's something I think all of us can connect with because each one of us have a body. So we, we get it. But maybe there's some implications that we should draw out of this, of what this really means for us collectively as a church. And first, it means that you belong. You belong. Paul starts by saying, look in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, sometimes we might be prone to think, well, because we don't have the same gifting, the same gift mix as other people, then we're trying to figure out where do we really belong. You say, well, I'm not up front teaching. I'm, I can't really play an instrument. Uh, I'm not too great working. And all of a sudden, you start going down the list. And you say, well, 
I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. And you start thinking, where do I even fit in? Do I have a purpose? Do I have a place? Do, do I belong here? But this illustration of the body means, yes, you do. You do belong here to this place. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to us, to his church. Because the foot does not have a crisis of confidence by saying, well, I guess I'm not a hand. The foot knows it plays an integral part and carries it out. Second, we need one another. So you belong, but you also need one another. See, the reality is that we are a better church because you are here. We need you. But you also need one another. We need each other. That's what Paul says next. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. See, sometimes we think, well, I can handle that. I can take care of all of this. I don't really need your help. See, we like being independent, and we are culturally conditioned to view dependence as synonymous with weakness. But the Bible has no such indication that being dependent on something or someone is inherently weak. We are all dependent on God, and we are dependent on one another to live together as the body of Christ. You were not meant to operate on your own any more than the ear is meant to operate on its own, or the eye on its own, or the hand on its own. Now, think about it like this. If you, uh, if you are an eye in the body of Christ and think, I have no need for anybody else, then you're missing out on the glorious aroma of smell. If you are an ear in the body of Christ and you say, well, I don't need anybody else, you are missing out on the delicious, beautiful, glorious sense of taste or the amazing beauty of sight. See, all of a sudden when we start looking at this as the body, we all of a sudden see we do need one another. So may it never be said that any of us look at someone else sitting here and say, I have no need of you. Doing so says far more about the one saying that statement than the one to whom they are saying it. Some might feel they don't belong. Others might feel, well, I don't really need other people. And both are wrong. And both stem from a place of distrusting God's sovereign work. Because the third thing that we see is that you are purposeful. Purposeful. Look at what Paul says. It's tucked away. Very easy to miss there in verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose. Or down in verse 24, but God has so composed the body. This is a work of God. And this is true both physically and spiritually. We live in a time in which the body is nothing more than a malleable vessel through which we convey and communicate that which we say is most deeply inherently true about us, which is our identity. But the Bible says that, no, God created you as you are, and that includes your body. Male and female, he created them. God is the one who designed it. That doesn't mean that we recognize everything about our bodies as good. We all could see the imperfections there. But we do recognize it as the work of a good and sovereign creator. We are God-ordained and God-designed. And we've got to say it like this because... Otherwise, we'll misinterpret what Paul is saying about the spiritual body. 
an increasingly common view nowadays is the body is whatever you want it to be. But the Bible says the body is how God created it to be. And the same is true of his spiritual body. It is not how you want it to be, but how God wants it to be. And I wonder if Christians who have no problem affirming God's design for the physical human body have a hard time affirming God's design for the spiritual body. Then we say, no, 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 we can kind of form this on our, own, on our own image, make it however we want it to be. And the Bible says, no, this is how God designed and ordained it to be. And that is as true over the past year as it has ever been. The people who are here are the people whom God has brought here. And we belong to one another according to the sovereign work and purpose of God. Fourth, then, means you are not alone because this truth has significant implications for the way that we live and treat one another. Look at what Paul says. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So he says, in light of all that we've just seen, and all that's true about the body of Christ, in light of all this, he says, may there be no division among you. We are to be united. That doesn't mean uniformity. That doesn't mean we're all exactly alike, because as we've seen, we have different gifts. But it does mean we are united. We, there's no division among us. And I wonder if one of the, the key indicators, one of the best diagnostic tools on whether we actually believe what the Bible says about the body of Christ is how well we suffer with those who are suffering and how well we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. That we don't look at those who are, who are celebrating and being honored and say, man, I'm, I'm pretty jealous that's not me. We rejoice with them. And we don't look at those who are suffering and say, well, at least that's not me. We say, no, I'm going to suffer with them. See, this is true of your body as well. Think about if you stub your toe or you step on a Lego, and uh, all of a sudden, your whole body gets involved, right? So you, like, grab your foot, and you start hopping around on the other foot, and I'm just hoping I don't fall down, and this is going to be a thumbnail on the line, I'm sure. So you're grabbing, you're grabbing your toe. Your other foot's having to compensate now for more work. You're holding your toe with your hand or your hand's waving around. Your eyes are tearing up, and out of your mouth is coming things you hope no one's around to hear. <laughs> your whole body's getting involved in this. Same is true spiritually. The whole body gets involved. When one member is suffering, we're all suffering with them. When one member is honored and rejoicing, we're all rejoicing with them. That's what it means to live in the body of Christ. And so fifth, we are united. You're united. All of this flows out of a true unity and oneness that we see in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He says something similar in Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And this has profound implications for the way that we see our identity. Because we see that it has two different dimensions to it. First, there is a corporate aspect to it, and second, there is an individual aspect. It says, are the body of Christ. Our identity is corporate, together. It seems that these verses make clear that it is an oxymoron to suggest that there is a Christian apart from the church. Now, 
that makes about as much sense as an arm that's apart from the body. We know that in extreme situations that might be the case, but here's the question, how's that arm doing? It's not the way it's intended to be. It's not the way it's healthy to be. The body of Christ, his people brought together. But there's also an individual aspect to it. He says, you are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. This passage is not saying you lose your individuality. It's not saying that there's nothing distinct about you. In fact, these passages are all about how there are distinctives, how there are different gifts, and yet we are one body, united in this. And all of this, Paul says in that passage in Romans we read, comes from the fact that we are one body in Christ. Our identity is ultimately found in him. We belong to him. We know him. What is his is ours. And so we talk a lot about the, 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 the vertical aspect of the gospel. That is, we are made right with God, but there's also a horizontal aspect. That is, we are made right with his people, and we are brought together and formed into this new creation, this new thing, which is the body of Christ. And so, theoretically, it is possible that there is a Christian without the church, because we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ alone, and not by the church. But it is impossible to have an obedient Christian living without the church. And so having looked at this whole idea of how we are one body and what this means for our unity, well, we now turn our attention to the ways in which we are different, and that is the gifts. This has all been laying the foundation, all been setting the stage for us to rightly understand what Paul talks about then when he says there are different spiritual gifts that have been given. And so what we see is that you are gifted to serve the body of Christ. You are a member of the body and you are gifted to serve the body. We'll pick it up again in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So there's that foundation we just talked about. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. Now, that listing of gifts is not exhaustive. doesn't mean Paul just listed every gift there is. The reason why we know that is actually very earlier in this chapter, verses 8 through 10, Paul has a slightly different list. Or in Romans 12, he lists a slightly different one. Or in Ephesians 4, he has a slightly different one. We know this is not exhaustive, but it is worth noting what is included in there. And the other thing I want to note is that these texts are foundational for a whole lot of other discussions, particularly about what gifts are still around today. And we are not going to be able to dive into that this morning. We are taking a, a, a kind of overview, big picture reality, not what gifts are around today, but the fact that there are gifts, but I would love to talk to you more if you want. And so the fundamental question is, again, what are our gifts for? What are they for? See, this passage would have us believe, the scripture would have us believe that our gifts are for the church, for one another. Sometimes we take things like spiritual gift tests or spiritual gift inventories. I got nothing against them, but here's the reality. You don't need them. The early church didn't have them, and they 
got along serving just fine. And here's the main issue, right? Again, they have their place, they, they can be useful, but here's the biggest thing. Those things are almost always taken in isolation, marking questions on a piece of paper and are ignoring the most important context because answering questions on a piece of paper is not the same thing as serving the church. These gifts are not your own. If your response when you were asked to serve is, well, that's just not my gift, it is possible, maybe even probable, that you are using it as a way of avoiding serving rather than actually serving. The gifts are given that we might serve better in the body. Let's say after, uh, after service today, I'm walking by a room and I see this huge spread of food. And now all of you are wondering, what room is that? <laughs> and let's say one of you pulls me aside and says, hey, Josh, will you help serve food? Now, there are many legitimate reasons why I might say no to that. I want to make that clear. You don't have to say yes to every request to serve. There are many legitimate reasons why you might say no. For example, I could, uh, I could stop and say, well, actually, I got to get to another lunch engagement. I'm sorry, I got, I got to leave. Or I could say, well, I'm, I'm pretty injured and I can't help. Or I could say, I'm really not skilled at doing that and I'm going to make a mess. And you say, how hard could it be? Well, you haven't seen me cook. So there are valid and acceptable reasons why you will have to say no to some opportunities to serve. But here's the point. If, if when you come up and ask me that, hey, will you help serve food for a few minutes? If I stop and I say, no, my gift's preaching, not serving food, then I'm using that as a way to avoid serving rather than serving more. These spiritual gifts are never to be used in hiding or in order to avoid serving, but to help clue us in on ways we can better serve the body of Christ. And so what we see is that your gifts are for the church. They're not for you, they're for the church. Verse 7, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you see, for the common good of whom? The body of Christ that he's spending this whole passage talking about. Well, that's why in verses 24 and 25, he says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. It's so we might care for one another. This is the call of every leader in the church. Ephesians 4 says that these gifts are given, right? These four gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, these are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's the calling of every leader in the church, and it's also the calling of every member in the church. In 1 Peter 4, he says like this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we all have received gifts, and we are all called to use them for one another. I know we did this last week too, but look around this room. Look at the people around here. The reason that you have been given gifts is to serve them. It's not selfish or self-serving. It is not about boasting or bragging in our own abilities. It's about serving in love those who are around us. And so we can't divorce this conversation from the local church that we are intended to serve. The right way to discern our spiritual gifts is by looking at others and asking, how can I best serve them? So, how do you discover those gifts? Well, I'm not even sure that's the right question to be asking, so I'll rebuke myself for asking it, but I know you're wondering it. 
Because sometimes we want to make sure we're just in the exact right spot before we start serving. We want to make sure it's all, this is the perfect fit. But that's a never-ending cycle because it's hard to figure out where you can best serve without actually serving. And so I want to just give you three simple suggestions on how to go about uh, discovering where you might be gifted. First, pray about it. Ask the Lord to help you discern your gifts and uh, find ways to serve. Ask him to open up opportunities for you to get involved. Ask him to make you more loving, more compassionate, more servant-hearted. Second, so first pray. Second, ask. Ask other people whom you trust. Might be a friend or a family member or a pastor or a grace group leader. The key is I would encourage it to be someone who has seen you in the context of your local church. And ask, where do you think I should serve? Not too long ago, someone from Grace came up to me and they were thinking about moving away from a, a ministry that I oversee to go serve somewhere else. And I, I, they, they told me, and I, I looked at them and I said, I think that's fantastic. And I, I proceeded to outline a number of reasons why that was. People who see you, people who know you, can tell, I think that's where you can really run with it and thrive. So first, pray. Second, ask. And third, serve. Start to serve. The point is that they were serving somewhere. And th this is probably the one that we hesitate on the most. Again, because we want to make sure it's just right. But the reality is start serving somewhere. Another person from Grace, whom I consider to be one of the most servant-hearted people I know, came up to me after last week's sermon and said, you know, we often make this far more complicated than it needs to be. In reality, we just got to start serving. And I absolutely agree. Because when that happens, you begin to see things that you might be good at, things that you might be passionate about. And sometimes you'll see things that, well, I know that's not, that's not my gift. Sometimes you'll see that. But as we begin to serve, we begin to see more and more clearly the ways in which the Lord has gifted us. So look at what you enjoy doing. Look at what others are affirming. And then get involved. Don't spend your time fretting about what's the best option or not. So look at what the needs of the church currently are and say, you know what, maybe that's the case. Because if it's true, and I believe it is, that the gifts are given to serve the local church, then maybe the Lord's opening up the opportunities for you to serve. Tom Schreiner very helpfully says it like this. Some might say they still don't know their gift, but knowing your spiritual gift isn't as important as exercising your spiritual gift. Surely many believers in history didn't know their spiritual gifts or think much about them, and yet they exercise those gifts in powerful ways. If you aren't sure what your spiritual gifts are, I wouldn't worry about it. If you give yourself to other believers in the church, you will inevitably be using your gifts. And the reason we can be so confident in saying that is because it is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God who gives these gifts in the first place. So the second thing we see is your gifts are from the Spirit. They're from the Spirit. Look back up in verse 4 of chapter 12. In these wonderful Trinitarian verses, it says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So it is the triune God who gives us these gifts. And now note in these following verses how often the Spirit of God is mentioned. Verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, 
to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. It's the same thing we looked at earlier. God arranged the members in the body. God has so composed the body. The Spirit of God has apportioned to each one as he wills. We can take no credit for these things because the Lord is the one who gives it to us by his Spirit. And so he's the one who empowers all of it, but we also see in this text that your gifts are not exhaustive. They might be exhausting at times, but they are not exhaustive. Verse 11, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In other words, you and I don't have every single gift. None of us do. It's the Spirit of God who has given it to us. So we can't go and say, well, man, I, I think I was, uh, I was poorly gifted here. I would do, do much better with those gifts over there. No, no, the Spirit of God is the one who does it, and he does not make mistakes. But the lesson is that your gifts are not exhaustive. You don't have everything. You don't know everything. That's precisely the way it's supposed to be. In verses 29 through 30, we read these earlier, and, and it demands, these questions demand the emphatic no response, so we could read it just as easily like this. Not all are apostles. Not all are prophets. Not all are teachers. Not all work miracles. Not all possess gifts of healing. Not all speak with tongues. Not all interpret. There is not a single one of us in here who checks every box or possesses every single gift, which means that we need one another. Ministry is not a solo sport, it is a team endeavor. We are far better together than we are apart. But this last point also leads us to another important truth, and it's that we should be careful the way we speak about things to avoid confusion about what is and is not a gift. What I mean by that is we talk a lot, for example, about the gift of evangelism. And I do believe there is such a thing. These are people who are especially skilled and gifted at proclaiming the gospel. And, and, uh, and, and these might be people who are planting churches or whatever. So I do believe there is such a case. But we must never avoid sharing the gospel with someone just because we don't have the gift of evangelism. Every believer is called to share the gospel. We must not hide behind the gifts. Most foundationally, though, every believer is called to love. There's not a single person in here, not a single Christian on the planet who can stop and say, I know that wasn't very loving, but that's, that's just not the way I'm wired, not the way I'm gifted. Because love is not a spiritual gift. It is the thing that empowers and, is, and roots all the other gifts. That's why Paul here at the end of the chapter, in verse 31, says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. It might be surprising that he says that after mentioning all these gifts. You say, well, what, what's the more excellent way? And he shows us in chapter 13. While not all are apostles, while not all are prophets or teachers or, or the like, not all of us have every gift, all of us, are called to love. So you are called to love the body of Christ. You are a member of the body, you are gifted to serve the body, and you are called to love the body of Christ. 
And so the one way to definitely know if you are using the gifts God has given you appropriately or not is whether you're using them in love. If you're not loving, you're abusing the gifts he has given. This speaks to our heart. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, it's probably a well-known passage to, uh, to most of you. It's read a lot at weddings and other settings like that. But I want to be clear that the context here, this is not foundationally and, and most importantly speaking to the romantic love between a husband and a wife. This is speaking to the kind of love that is to be shared between the body of Christ and the members, brothers and sisters, here. So I'm going to read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. You might have different gifts. Each one of us is gifted in different ways. But every single one of us is called to love. Every single one of us is called to use the gifts and abilities that God has given to us, God has entrusted to us, God has sovereignly ordained that we would have. God has called every single one of us in here to use those in love. In fact, Paul says, if you use those and you're not loving, it's useless. What good is it? He says, if I, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels have not love, I'm, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It, it makes no difference. If I were to go over here and start trying to make some music on here, you'd all be running for the exits. But if Tyler were to come over here and start playing, it would sound beautiful. That's what love does to our gifts. If it's in our own effort without love, it's going to make everyone run for cover and just be a bunch of useless noise. But with love, it's a beautiful thing that serves one another. And yet, we so often do this imperfectly, don't we? Challenge you. Look at verses 4 through 7. And put your name in there where it says love. For example, like this. Josh is patient and kind. And all of a sudden, we can call time out and say, I'm already in trouble. Josh is patient. No, that's not true. <laughs> um, it's easy to get discouraged when we see that. See, everything in that text about love, we see elsewhere in Corinthians that these Corinthian people were not doing that all too well. 
But when we look at the rest of the New Testament, we also see someone who does do it perfectly. I want to put someone else's name in there for you. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that sounds right, doesn't it? It's because he is our model of what love really looks like. We looked last week, the call to serve is the call to Christ-like love. We love like Christ has because he first loved us and gave himself up for us that he might bring us to himself. And so when we experience that kind of eternity-changing love, we are transformed to love like he does. We are shaped by his image and his love to love other people in the way that he loves us. And so the focus here is not so much on the gifts, but on the one who gives the gifts. It's not so much on the gifts, but on the purpose for them, and that is to serve the church. And it's not so much on the gifts, but that is the motivation behind them, which is to be used in love. God is the one who gives these gifts to serve the church all with love. Spurgeon said like this, a certain way may be good, but another way may be even better. Gifts are good, but love is better. We should desire spiritual gifts, but above all, we should seek love, the best love, the noblest love, the greatest love, that is love to God, love to fellow believers, and love to the church of God. This is the even better way. We should seek this love first because we need it. I do not know if we need all the gifts, but I'm sure that we need this love. Next, we should seek this love because we can have it. There is no limit to God's love. Perhaps even though we covet earnestly the greater gifts, there may be some gifts we will never receive, but all can have love. We need to get more love also because we will then be more useful. I'm not sure any of us would be more useful if we had more gifts. Not every gift makes a person useful, but I am sure that divine love makes us useful. A gift is often barren, but love is always fruitful. And we need to get this love so we will glorify God. How little glory God often gets out of great gifts. Gifts may be prostituted to the vilest purposes, but love always brings glory to God's holy name. Remember also that though we desire great gifts, we'll lose them one day. But if we have this love, we will keep it, and it will keep us. This divine love gives us the foretaste and the pledge of glory. The person who is full of the majestic grace of divine love truly is blessed. And that's true for us as the church. We are those who have tasted the love of God. We are the recipients of his amazing love to us that transforms us from sinners and enemies to what Denny and Janie talked about, that we are his friends. That kind of love doesn't just leave us where we are, but transforms us to love each other with the gifts that God has given to us for the good of the church, for the good of one another, that we would love each other because we love the God who first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way in which you love us. We don't deserve it. We could not earn it. Um, and you lavish it upon us in Christ anyway. Um, the love with which you loved us, that um, even when we didn't love you, you loved us. Um, even while we were your enemies, you made us your friends. Um, pray that we would not lose sight of that, that we would 
forever and ever be drawn all the more deeper into the unfathomable riches of that love for us. And I pray that as we grow more and more in understanding that, that you would transform us to love like Jesus loved us. That we would show each other, here, brothers and sisters sitting in this room, and, 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 and that you would empower us to love each other using the gifts that you've given us. Father, thank you for the gifts, that they, that they are to be used to serve your body. Thank you for the unity that we share. I pray that you would grow us all the more unified with one another. And I pray that all of it would happen in love. Make us loving, Father. May we love you more, may we love others more. And when we do it all by remembering the love of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. There will be people down front who would be more than happy to pray with you if you would like prayer for anything. Um, but have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.